Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. Amen. John chapter 8, verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, and yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. And this was the sermon three weeks ago. The gift of eternal life, you will never see death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, they asked, who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you would not have known him. I know him. If I were to say that, I do not know him. I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, and this is the focus of the sermon this morning. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Amen. And the sermon this morning is simply on the identity of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you can truly understand who Jesus is, to grasp that, it will change, change your life. Amen. Would you bow your head? Let's pray one more time. Father, this morning, uh, thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and we thank you for it. It is forever settled in heaven. It is transformational. It is powerful, and your word is here today to speak to us. I pray your Holy Spirit as it anoints that you would open up our ears to hear, our hearts to receive, our minds to understand, and that we would take your word with us today, take it with us as we leave today, and let it continue to transform us. We pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As those of you who have been coming the last 11 months that we've been together have heard me say, my goal as a preacher is to preach what is known as expository sermons. And this simply means that we open up the Bible and we unpack what's in the text that we read and we lift it up and we show it to everyone so we can be exposed to the glory of God and let God's glory change our lives. I have been preaching for this fall will be 27 years and much of the, that time was spent not really trying to preach sermons like that. It was only a few years ago that I discovered um, that there was probably a better way to preach than what I had been preaching, which was not unfruitful, it didn't, not that it wasn't good, 
um, I just said there's probably a better way to do this. And so I joined the ranks of uh, lots of people who preach in this manner. That's not to say that the practical application is not important. It is important. Uh, you shouldn't have to walk out of here and say, well, that was some pretty neat ideas, but that has nothing to do with my life on a Tuesday afternoon. That's not helpful either. However, practical application is not my immediate concern. Um, that's more secondary because unless we see what God is saying to us, the practical application can be skewed and it can be misapplied. There is no way that a preacher could take a text and apply it to every situation in the room. I heard a pastor tell a story years ago. He talked about on a Sunday morning, he's preaching on Isaiah 6. Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his, of his, his robe fills the temple. And there was a family there that day that had just found out that there had been a tremendous amount of abuse among several people in the family, unbeknownst to the parents. And the parents were there that day, authorities were involved, uh, the pastor knows nothing of this, it just happened. He doesn't know that this family in the church is dealing with this. And he's preaching this sermon. And I won't go into details about the, just how bad it was, but it was a bad situation. And after the service, the father comes up to the pastor and grabs him and says, I want to thank you for that sermon this morning. He said, here's what we're going through. And he said, I needed to hear that God is on the throne and in control. No way the pastor could have known to say, okay, we're going to take this verse and apply it to this particular situation. But God, through the anointing of the Holy Spirit, was able to apply that application in the hearts of those people and help them that day. It does mean, this kind of preaching, that I am not prone to give sermons on how to have a better marriage or seven tips from the Bible on how to be successful in life or ten ways to improve your finances. Those are great lectures and great talks. That's just probably not what you'll ever hear from this pulpit. It does mean that I attempt to preach Bible-saturated sermons and that when possible we make application, but that the Holy Spirit is always making application in your heart and your mind and your soul. I will never know as a preacher the extent to which the preached word mixed with your faith and with the operation of the Holy Spirit that's here, I'll never know the extent to which that transforms lives. But there is a second way to preach, and I attempt to do this as well, and that is experiential. It addresses how a Christian experiences the truths in the Bible. A man named Paul Helm wrote about this. He said, the situations today calls for preaching that will cover the full range of the Christian experience and a developed experimental theology. The preaching must give guidance and instruction to Christians in terms of their actual experience. It must not deal in unrealities or treat congregations as, as if they lived in a different century or in wholly different circumstances. This involves taking the full measure of our modern situation and entering with full sympathy into the actual experiences, the hopes, the fears of the people. And so that is, and I don't always do this well, I often feel like I don't live up to the mark, but that's what I attempt to do. And that's just a little preface this morning on before the, the main part of the sermon, is this what, is what we're trying to do in sermons? This is what we're trying to do in preaching. We're trying to unpack the text, bring the text. I have zero interest 
in trying to entertain people. I have zero interest in uh, trying to be humorous. Nobody has ever accused me of being funny. I don't imagine at this point in life that'll change. Uh, I know preachers who use humor incredibly well in the pulpit. Um, I learned a long time ago I probably shouldn't try to do that. So the last sermon in this series was both unpacking the text, but it was also very practical. What is more practical than dealing with the subject of death? Because it's something we're all going to face and deal with at some point in our existence. I preached that sermon that Sunday, and then just a few days later, um, you know, father-in-law, Tammy's dad who passed away, and then we're there, we're gone, and I thought, you know, I just preached about this, and now I get to, to experience this. That this, is, this is why this man lived like he did. This is why this man had faith. So at this point in his life that he could say, he could hear the Lord say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. The most important thing for all of us is to know God. That is the most important thing. Knowing God, having an understanding of Him, having knowledge of Him, having a relationship with Him, nothing is more important. Knowing God in our time means knowing Jesus Christ and knowing who Jesus is. And that's the focus of the sermon today, the identity of Jesus Christ. Now, I, I readily admit that the Bible can be hard to understand. I get that. I've had... I've sat down with people who have went to church two and three times a week for 30 years, no exaggeration. I've sat down with those people and found out that they had very little understanding on how the Bible really works or really what's there. They'd sat through hundreds, thousands of sermons, but they didn't really understand the Bible. It's an ancient book. It was written over the course of, of hundreds of of years. It's thousands of years old. It was written by people who had a different worldview than we do, a different culture than we live in, drastically different with technology and just how people thought. You know, we, we think that we just think naturally, but we don't. Our, our thinking has been influenced by uh, centuries and centuries of culture, and uh, it, it's just a different time and place. And even then, to, to add on to that, not all the writers in Scripture had the same worldview. It's not like they were all together. They came from different times and places. The writers themselves spanned hundreds of years. They came from different backgrounds and cultures, and they had different worldviews. And yet the Bible is God-breathed. It is the Word of God. Now, God did not take over the hand of the writer. He did not say, okay, um, Greg, you're the prophet that's going to write scripture, so I'm going to take over your hand and I'm just going to, you're just going to write like a machine. That's not how the Bible works. God inspired and anointed people to pin words at the highest possible level of divine inspiration, but not at the expense of using the writer's unique set of skill and knowledge. So this is why you can read Paul in the Bible and you can read Peter, and you can tell that two different people wrote these letters. God didn't take over their hand and say, okay, you're going to write this. He was the highest possible level of inspiration, but you can tell Luke writes very different than Mark in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the Bible. Like, you can tell Mark is not as educated. He's not as, his style is much more simple than somebody like Luke, who's an educated physician. And that comes through in the writings. And so because of this, we need a framework to understand the Bible. One of my biggest passions after doing 
years of ministry in, in different contexts was to say, Christians, never mind people who haven't come to faith, even people who have come to faith a lot of times simply don't understand the Bible. So it's one of my passions to say I want to help people understand the Bible. Because you never fully arrive, right? I mean, you're always constantly learning. I'm, I'm constantly digging into Scripture and seeing things and, and all of this. And so that's what I want us to do is to help you, help us understand Scripture. And this framework to understand the Bible is possible because the Bible is not a random collection of stories and writings. It is broad in its style. There's poetry and there's prose and there's stories and there's imagery and there's all these different forms of writing. We don't pick up newspapers that much anymore, but if you were to pick up a newspaper, you open up the funny papers, the comics, and you read those, you approach those different than you do the obituaries, different than you do a, a story about world events. People come to hear a, a speaker and they come prepared. What kind of talk is this? You would not go to a comedy show and with the same expectation as you would coming to church and hearing a sermon. This is, there is a wonderful YouTube video about this where there is a preacher at a conference. Uh, I could give you the link. He goes to speak to a group of people. It is the American Association of Christian Counselors. These are Christian counselors. It's a conference. They think a comedian is on stage next. There was a comedian in the mix. They think this guy is coming on to do comedy. That's how it was set up. The guy that's coming to speak is about as far away from being funny in the pulpit as you can get. He's dead earnest, serious all the time. He gets in the pulpit, he starts to talk, and the crowd for about seven minutes constantly laughs at him. And he, you can see the look on his face as he's trying to think, what is going on here? And it's because they came with a mindset to hear somebody funny. And he was saying nothing funny, but it was, it was a great exercise in psychology. It's like a thousand people are out here laughing at him. And about seven minutes in, he stops. He says, I don't know what's going on. I've been preaching for 50 years and I've never had this happen. It's like, why are you all laughing at me? It's because they approached it. They, they came in with a mindset that, hey, this guy on stage is supposed to be a comedian. So what he says must be funny. And so we approach the text this way. We, we should approach the text and read it and say, okay, this is poetry. I'm probably supposed to read this as poetry, or this is a story. I should understand what the story is trying to tell me because God has chosen to always communicate to people within the context of their culture and their language and their traditions. That's how God talks to us, through His Word. But here's the wonderful part. There is always one story being told through it all. From Genesis to Revelation, there is one grand story of God's creation, the fall of mankind, and God's redemptive purpose throughout the whole of the Bible and throughout history on how God is going to get His creation back on track. That is the big story of the Bible. So we understand this story by following different covenants that God made with certain people in the Bible. This is how God works. If you want to know God, you want to understand God, you need to know that God makes covenants with people. It unfolds His purpose and His plan. This is, this is not a plan from an impersonal God. Part of the repeated language that God will utter to His covenant people in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, is that I will be your God and you will be my people. It is relational. It's not just... We're going to sign this contract, it's a covenant. No, it's God saying, I'm going to be your God and you will be my people. And at the core of all of this is that there is only one God 
and that he is a creator and he created his creation perfectly. In the beginning, with beauty and glory and splendor, he brought order from chaos in Genesis 1, and then creation, mankind, fell because of man's sin. And the Bible is the story of God's redemption of all of that. And it's not over yet. We are still living in this creation, in this story of redemption. We can understand this story by following the covenants that God makes. So I'm just going to briefly touch three of these covenants, and I'll, I'll bring this in and show you how this actually relates to John chapter 8, when Jesus says, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. So God makes a covenant with Noah. In Genesis, writer of Genesis says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, speaking to Noah, and you shall come unto the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. So God's creation was corrupted by sin. God is going to judge the earth for all this, and yet he provides Noah a way of escape. So Noah functions as a new Adam. Noah is to go and to be fruitful and multiply throughout all the earth, and this covenant has a sign. The sign of the covenant is the rainbow. Writer of Genesis says, God says, I'm going to put this bow in the sky so you can remember that I will never again destroy the earth with a flood. God is making peace with his creation. Now the creation is going to sin again, but God is establishing this plan. He's working out this plan of redemption where he can rescue a fallen world. So he comes and he makes a covenant with Abraham. Now, I chose to work through these covenants to show the identity of Christ because Abraham is central in the conversation in John chapter 8, right? His name is right there. They're having this conversation about Abraham. Abraham is a really big deal to the Jews. He's Father Abraham. He's the beginning of the, of the nation, and they really revere and respect Abraham. And so Abraham is central in the Old Testament. There is a covenant that the Jews said, uh, to Jesus, that Abraham is our father. So God begins something new again with his covenant with Abraham in the Old Testament that continues to this time today. Read you in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's Genesis 12. Genesis 15. After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, for I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And the word of the Lord came to Abram, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought Abraham outside, and he said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male shall be circumcised. The sign of the covenant in the Bible in the Old Testament was among the males who were born uh, on the eighth day, they were to be circumcised. That was an order, it was the sign, the commandment by God of that covenant. The third covenant was the covenant that God made with Moses. That covenant covers five chapters in the book of Exodus, and it is the covenant through the law that God made with His people. Now here's where it all dovetails together. Moses is on the backside of a mountain. He sees a bush that's burning, but it's not consumed. And of course, God is in the midst of this bush. He's speaking to Moses from this bush. And Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel, because God's wanting Moses to go deliver the people from slavery. They've been in slavery for 400 years. Moses has been chosen by God to go set those people free. And so Moses is having a conversation with God about this because he's just this shepherd who's now... 80 years old on the backside of a desert herding sheep and God's calling him to do something that he knows he can't really do by himself. So Moses has this natural question, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is the name of God. If you want to know what the name of God is in the Old Testament, this is it. This is where God gives His name. And he, said to, and he said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus am I to be remembered throughout all generations. So anytime you're reading your Bible and you're in the Old Testament, you see the word Lord, and it's there hundreds of times, that word Lord, if it's capitalized, all capital letters, that is this, this word, that's this name, the I Am. That's, that's the name of God. The people of Israel understand that. It's, it's His name. If you took that in the Old Testament and you tried to, to put that into our language, you would come up with the letters Y-H-W-H. All consonants, no vowels. Uh, it also can be written J-H-V-H. Well, how do you pronounce that? Well, you can't. You've got to have consonants. And there are no consonants in the Hebrew language. Uh, so they, they add them to this, and, and they come up with something like Yahweh or Jehovah. This is how we would say it. We have to add letters even to be able to pronounce that. The problem with that is the Jews are so conscientious about not violating that commandment that says, don't take the Lord's name in vain. They think that this name is so precious and so holy that they don't let it come across their lips because I'm a broken, dirty human being and for me to utter the name of God would, could violate that commandment. So I'm not going to say that name anymore. Uh, I'm, it, it, it's, it's probably blasphemy even, which is bizarre to us because we now hear the Lord's name taken in vain at the drop of a hat in our culture. It's nothing to utter uh, His name as a byword. But to those people, it was precious. It was sacred. So about 300 years before the time of Christ, uh, it had been stopped saying so long that nobody then or even now really knows how they said it. 
They, they forgot how to pronounce it. They would substitute names like Adonai in place, like a title, but they wouldn't actually say Yahweh. They wouldn't let that, uh, that name come across their lips. It was too holy and too precious. So this is why in Luke chapter 1, when the angel comes to Mary and says, Mary, don't be afraid. You found favor with God. You're going to conceive in your womb. You're going to bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, and he shall save his people from their sins. Now the, the name of God is now back among us. It wasn't a magical name. There were lots of boys at the time named Jesus. Uh, there, it's not like the name was invented then. There's no, it's, it's not abracadabra. It's not something special about those five letters. Um, it's just the fact that the person was Jesus Christ. The identity was there. Now the Son of God, divinity fused with flesh, is now walking among us. And the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary. Something supernatural, divine happens and she becomes pregnant with the Son of God. Jesus is both God and He is man. John, if you remember back to the first sermon weeks ago, John began his gospel with the idea that the Word was in the beginning. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word of God pre-existed because God pre-exists. Before anything was, God is. God is outside of time. He is the eternal present. It's everything in our minds has dimensions. This room has dimensions. Your life has dimensions. Your property, everything that you know has dimensions. God has no dimensions. He is outside of time. He has always been. You cannot wrap your head around the idea of a God who had no beginning. What was before God? Nothing, because God never started. There was no beginning to God. There is no end to God. He simply exists. He is being himself. Before Abraham was means that he existed, that he came, he was not born, but that he was always in existence before Abraham. And Jesus in John 8 is making the case that as great as Abraham was, Abraham had a beginning. Jesus is contrasting someone who had a definitive beginning with himself, who as the Word of God had always been. So when Jesus says, I am, it is a statement that has much more significance than if I stand here and say, I am. Because if I say, I am, you're waiting on me to finish the sentence. Okay, you are what? I am what? You know, you, don't, you can't stop the statement. Uh, I am going to work. I'm going to pick up milk after work. I am an artist. I am a bricklayer. I am an accountant. I am tired. I am excited. Something has to follow. I am. People wait for the rest of the sentence. You just simply cannot be. You are, you are what? What's, what's the rest of that story? But when Jesus says before Abraham was born, I am, he's not following a statement with what he is. He's simply making a declaration that the God of the Old Testament that was in the burning bush speaking to Moses, that told Moses, tell them my name is I am. Jesus said, I'm the one that was in the burning bush. I am that great I am. It's not a phrase that, that precedes a description of what he is. It is an authoritative claim of his eternal being as God himself. Jesus is God and he is making a statement that he is God. 
God alone is being. Everything else merely has existence. God's essence is that He is. He exists. And everything that exists, exists because of Him. If you sit here this morning with breath, you do so because He exists. And you exist because of Him. If he wanted to simply say that he existed before Abraham was, he could have said, before Abraham was, I was. The language was certainly available to use at that time. But Jesus had already used in this chapter, he had already referred to himself as the I am twice, but it was more subtle. In verse 24 of chapter 8, he said, I told you that you would all die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Four verses later, Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. He is alluding to the fact that He is the promised Messiah. It was central to Judaism at that time that there was going to come a Messiah. Someone is going to rescue them. They're Jews, the people of God. They're living under the oppression of the Roman Empire. They're a people without a, a home. I mean, they're in, they're in exile within their own land. It's not a good situation. And they know, they've been looking for hundreds of years. They know the Old Testament says a Messiah is coming. They just missed that Jesus was that Messiah. I am. This language is in the Old Testament. Isaiah 41, Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning, I the Lord the first and with the last, I am He. Isaiah 43, And also henceforth I am He, there is none who can deliver from my hand. The Jews missed who Jesus is. They saw Him only as a man and they completely missed His identity as the Son of God. They could not get past His identity. That this guy over here that's healing the sick and raising the dead and claiming to be God, he's actually a carpenter's son. We know his parents. He was born because if you don't believe he's the Son of God, then you believe he was born illegitimately, which was an even bigger deal in that day. He would have grown up with that stigma of being an illegitimate child um, because, you know, I mean, they're not... Joseph and Mary aren't fully together, and she becomes pregnant, and, and it was scandalous. If you don't believe he's the Son of God, then, then a stigma is attached to Jesus in that day. They only saw him as the carpenter's son. Say, so, okay, so all of that might be true, but how does that relate to me? I said there's two parts to preaching. There's exposition, and there's the experiential. If what I have talked about this morning, if what I have preached from Scripture is true, then it has everything to do with every single area of your life. Because if Jesus is who He says He is, the great I Am, making that bold declaration that I am the God of the Old Testament here walking among you, if Jesus is who He says He is, then we must take heed to what He asks and what He commands. The greatest part of this is that Jesus comes and He invites us to be part of Him, to be in Christ, to place our faith and our trust in Him. He, he invites us to be baptized into Him and into, into the community of believers. He invites us to be filled with His Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of Christ. All of those are invitations. So Jesus does command. He says, you must be born again.
Jesus said, you must believe in me to have eternal life. You must love me and listen to me and abide in me and take up your cross and follow me. Jesus said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. Jesus said, you must fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He said, you must worship God and you must worship him in spirit and in truth. He said, we must pray. He told us we must humble ourselves before God. He told us that if we come to him, we've got to come to him with childlike faith, just simple faith that Jesus, I believe you are who you are. Come unto me as little children. If you believe what I preached this morning and you believe his words where he says, you must trust me, you must trust my ways, you must trust me to save you, you must trust me to sanctify you and make you more like me. You must enter through the narrow gate for broad is the way of destruction and narrow is the life, the way to life. Jesus said you must seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all the other things will be added. You must love your enemies. Here's the hard part of Christianity. You know, we want to, Jesus, teach me how to heal the sick and raise the dead and teach me how to fish for my tax money. You did that once. You know, like, teach me how to do that, you know. Uh, teach, teach me how to walk on water. All those neat tricks you do, teach me how to do that. It's interesting, the only thing I ever read the disciples asking Jesus to teach them how to do is how to pray. Because they saw that everything that he did came from time. Even Jesus came time spent in prayer. The disciples, Jesus, you got to teach us how, you, how to pray. Not, not how you do that, but teach us how to pray. But we want to do all those other things. But Jesus says you've got to love your enemies. Jesus said you need to pray for your enemies. He said you must pray for those who use and despitefully abuse you. It's the mark of Christianity. You must do good to those who hate you. You must go the extra mile. You know, at that time they could, uh, a Roman soldier could compel a citizen to carry his, his goods for up to a mile. The law said you could do it up to a mile. They said, Jesus, what do you have to say about that? Jesus says, go two miles. We have that term in our culture, go the extra mile. That's where that comes from. It's from the lips of Jesus. Jesus said, the law says you have to do it for one mile. I'm telling you, do it for two. Somebody punches you, turn the other cheek. That's hard for us. That is, not in our, that is not in our makeup. Somebody today in a restaurant, for whatever reason, takes a swing at me. I'm swinging back. Like, you know, I just am. There's, I, that's, I think we're all that way. I'm not any different. We're all that way. It's like, no, I was taught to defend myself. And I understand that Jesus is speaking much more bigger picture here. I, let, let's, let's know that and, and make for sure of that. But Jesus is trying to communicate something. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. You must do good to those who hate you, Jesus said. You've got to love your neighbor as yourself. You've got to lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt. You must speak truth. You must honor your vows and keep your word. You must render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render under, unto God what is God. You must baptize people and you must go make disciples. His last words in Matthew. Go baptize people and make disciples. You must be holy for I am holy. 
If Jesus is who He says He is, then we must do what He says to do. We must know Him and know His Word. We must forsake all and follow Him. Be ye holy, for I am holy. I close with just a simple idea and message of what the Gospel is when He commands us to be holy. God is holy. There is none like God. The only perfect man that's ever walked this earth was Jesus Christ. He never sinned, never committed sin. Nobody in this room can say this. Nobody in this room, can, I, my, my 10-year-old who had to, to leave here a few moments ago, um, he has sinned. I know he has. I'm his father. <laughs> he, uh, he has sinned. Um, and we all have. And sin is offensive to God. It's offensive to His holiness. So there's the question, how could a loving God send people to hell? It's the wrong question. It's how could a holy God not require just punishment for things that offend His infinite holiness? We, we've lost in Christianity, even in Christianity, even in conservative evangelical Christianity, we've lost the concept of holiness. It is, you know... A lot of churches today are vaudeville circuses on Sunday. There's nothing sacred or holy that's left. But God is holy and He demands holiness. Well, holiness is perfection. God demands my righteous perfection. It's the only way I can be saved. I have to be holy. It's the only way. I don't have a chance if I cannot be holy like He's holy. And that poses a severe, severe problem. It's because I know that within me, there is no ability to achieve that mark. I cannot make that. I don't care if I pray three hours a day, another three hours in Scripture. I guarantee you an hour out of that six-hour prayer meeting, I'm going to probably have a thought that probably violates God's standards. That's a problem. And I don't have six hours a day to, to give to that anyway. So what do I do? How can I be righteous and holy before God? How can I, how can I please this Jesus who made the audacious claim walking among his literal brethren, his actual brothers that Mary and Joseph had and being raised in as Joseph's a carpenter, the word there is probably more like a general contractor. Joseph was probably a builder of buildings. Jesus was raised out of that. Jesus probably knew how to work with his hands and build. And that's like, who is this guy? We, we've, we've ate with him. We've walked with him. We've watched him work a job. And now he's claiming to be God. He's the son of God. is preposterous. And that same Jesus then makes the demands and the claims on us that I have to be righteous if I'm going to be saved. It's why we exist. It's why we gather every Sunday morning is to share the good news of the gospel, the greatest news in the world, is that he takes his righteousness and He imputes it to me. And when I stand before God someday, if God is to say, Son, why are you here? I sure hope I don't step back and say, Well, it's because I did this and I did that and I believe this and I checked this box. All I can do is fall at His feet. Fall at the feet of Jesus and say, You're the reason I'm here. I couldn't generate righteousness. I couldn't generate holiness. Be like, I could, I'll say what Paul said. I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. I'm rotten to the core as a human being, and I know that. Even as a sanctified, saved, spirit-filled person, I know what I have the propensity to do. 
I've heard people say, they've looked at people, I've heard this in the church, say, I've done a lot of things in my life, I'd never do that. You better be careful making that statement. You don't know what you're capable of doing. Even as a person who has faith in Christ, it is by His grace and His mercy. And if I get to the other side, I'll just fall down at His feet and say, Jesus, I'm here for one reason. It's because you invited me and said I could come. That's why I'm here. I am here. Am I righteous this morning? Am I holy this morning? Yes, I am. I'm a righteous, holy person. It's just that it's not my righteousness and it's not my holiness. It's His. We read in Genesis earlier where it said Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, I can't go down that trail, but if you read Romans, this is the whole crux of Paul's argument is that just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So when we have faith in Jesus Christ, that God turns around and he counts that to us as righteousness. And he takes his, he clothes us in righteousness, but it is the righteousness of Christ. I'd say to you this morning that don't live in condemnation. One of the worst places for a believer to live is under condemnation. Condemnation that you're not, I'm not good enough. You're right, you're not. That's why Jesus died for your sins, because you're not good enough. For people say, I couldn't walk into the church, the ceiling would fall in. It's like, no, the church was designed exactly for people who think that. For people who have nothing to do to bring or to offer, but their repentance and say, God, I've made a rotten, terrible mess of my life. It's a disaster. Can you help me fix this? And he says, yes, repent. Make, a, make an about face, turn around, have godly sorrow. You're going you're gonna to start this faith walk. Say, well, I'm going to mess up. Yeah, you are going to mess up a lot. Uh, you're going to mess up a whole lot. And there's grace and there's mercy for there. It's not a license to sin. It's not a license to live any way you want. But it's a reality check to say that if I am going to make it, if I'm going to be saved, if I'm going to walk with the one who said before Abraham was I am, if I'm going to do that, it's going to be on his strength and his righteousness. All I have to offer is my submission and my surrender. People who try to walk with God just, you know, I, I want to have this great successful walk with God and I'm going to give God this and I'm going to do that. The greatest thing, really, the only thing that you can give God this morning is your submission and your surrender. Stand before Him, arms wide open, say, Lord, I've made a mess of things. I'm surrendering to You. And if I can let you in on this, if you walk with God very long, if you made that decision today and you walk with God very long, you could, people may think you're the greatest devoted Christian there is, but there'll come a lot of times in your life where as a Christian, you've got to turn around and say, Lord, I made a mess of things again. Uh, I need to recalibrate. I need to get things right. People are baptized. We, we, we baptize people. We believe in baptism. We, we, we bury people in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission, for the washing away of their sins, for being buried, counted righteous in Christ, for joining, identifying with a community of believers. But you don't get baptized every time you make a mistake. You would, you know, you would live wet if you got <laughs> baptized every time you made a mistake. Uh, you've just got to know that there is the blood of Jesus that is there to cleanse you and to forgive you. There is grace and there is mercy. So all these commandments, and I read you 25 commandments. 
I had 50. I thought 50 would probably be a little much. But there are, I read to you 25 commandments that Jesus talked about. That Jesus says, if you're going to be in me, you need to, to do this. You say, well, that's, that's a lot. No, it's not a lot because here's the invitation from Jesus. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Before Abraham was, I am. I am so grateful. I am a debtor. You are debtors to the grace and mercy of Jesus because God so loved the world. That's what Jesus is saying in John 8. I'm the Old Testament God. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Stand with me this morning. Sister Peggy begins to play. I want to pray a prayer over us this morning. Father, I thank You for everything that You've done for us. While we're debtors to You, we don't try to repay You. We know we never could. We simply stand in awe of Your grace and Your mercy. And we know that the best life that there is to live in this life is to live a life close to You, abiding in You, being Your disciple, following Your commandments, Your teachings, Your ways. Lord, we, we never get it just right, but we get up every day with a heart full of humility and repentance and say, Lord, create in me a clean heart and renew in me a right spirit. Help me today to do a little better, to be a little more like You. Lord, so many of us this morning say that we're Christians, but we know that we're not fully Christ-like. There's areas in our life that don't really please You, and we're aware of that. And we ask You, Lord, that You would help us to transform those areas to be more like You. And Lord, I, I don't know the condition of the hearts of anyone in this place. I'm not, I don't have that privilege, that access to see in people's hearts. Only You can. But Lord, inside the hearts and minds of every man and woman that stands here this morning, if there be anyone that doesn't know You, that is not walking in a place that they need to, I pray, Lord, that You would bring the convicting power of Your Holy Spirit because your conviction never drives people away. It always draws them near to you. It embraces them. It comforts them. It convicts us of our sin. It separates from our sin. But Lord, it, it comforts us and it draws us to you, to your throne of grace and mercy. And Lord, this morning I pray as your Holy Spirit is even talking to our hearts and our minds right now, Lord, that your voice would not fall silent when we walk out of this place. But as we go out back into a real world and carry on our own lives full of challenges, work and school and finances and, and crisis and family and all the things that everyone deals with, Lord, I pray that that still small voice would be there every day talking to them, talking to every heart and mind here. Lord, so that tomorrow on a job or tomorrow evening in a home, Lord, that not my words, but that your words would still ring true. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And Father, we thank you for those words this morning. In Jesus' name, as Sister Peggy leads us in song.